As of 2015, fully 70% of working age adults in China were high school dropouts. This leaves China's population less educated than the population of any other middle-income country and even worse off than that of many poorer countries. That, as I'm sure you'd agree, Stuart, is a staggering statistic to start off the latest episode of What China Wants with me, Sam Olson, and Stuart Patterson. And it is something which is, uh, what should be, of chronic interest to Beijing if they are trying to keep their country on the straight and narrow path of development. And joining us today is the author of these words, Scott Rosell from the University of Stanford in America and one of the world's leading experts on the development of China. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Stuart. It's uh, always good to have the interaction with you. Looking forward to it. So to start off, I just want to mention that this quote comes from your book, Invisible China. Uh, what do you mean by invisible China? Well, in, in invisible China is the, the China that we don't see. It's it's not the Beijing, Shenzhen, or Shanghai, right, that is on the news or that p- people go visit, the businessmen visit, or the tourists. One out of nine people in the world are rural Chinese. That means that they have a, an identification card that says, I was born in a rural area, and it means that's uh, that's where they're going to live their life in terms of social welfare, education, health. They can move and migrate to work, but they have this you know entire set of access to the social services that are much much inferior than somebody from urban China. Um, actually, Scott, can I just uh, pick up on that a, a second? So what, what sort of proportion of what we call rural Chinese, as, as in they're designated as such, actually now live in rural areas? So we seem to have three demographics here. We have urban Chinese, rural Chinese, and rural Chinese who are living in urban areas. Exactly. Um, and China actually has two different sets of, of census data. One is on the day they took the 2020 census or the 2010 census, where did you live? And today, about 50, 60% of Chinese, of 1.4 billion people, are living in urban areas. And 40% are still you know, out in the rural areas. But when you look at the huko or the residency, it's the exact opposite. 60% are rural, which means the, the difference, these migrants, there's uh, probably 250, 300 million migrants, and then their families sometimes, if they you know are able to bring them with them. So these migrants are the ones that they are from a rural area, but they're living in an urban area. They're like a guest, though. They, they can't live there and take their kids to school, to public school there. They can't get public health services there. And so there's like second-class citizens, though they're doing, supplying the labor for manufacturing, construction services, et cetera. And so, Scott, uh, looking at that, um, what, what sort of traits mark them out as different from the urban population in terms of socioeconomic metrics? Sam, in the introduction, mentioned education. Perhaps we could go into that a little bit. But presumably also there's a big income difference as well, and maybe even life expectancy and that kind of thing. Yeah. um, So uh, certainly education is where the biggest difference lies. If we look at the whole labor force, 
basically, you know, that's everybody from 18 to 65. It, it's what, what Sam said, right, is that China only has 30% of its whole labor force. That labor force is about, what, 800 million people. So only 30% of them have ever been to one day of high school. Only about 10 to 15% of rural people have ever been to high school in this whole labor force the elderly in the labor force. So from 50 to 65, almost they never went to high school. Okay. Um, younger kids are going more often, but much, much less than in urban areas. And you look at college, a small fraction of rural people's 10% have ever been to a day of college while it's probably up around 50 to 60% of urban people have been. So it's a huge difference. There's a great set of papers now by Terry Sickler, who's a, uh, an economist up in Western Ontario University and her colleagues that looks at the income side of things. So on the one hand, she says, look at China has the fastest growing middle income population in the world. It's 350 million people. It's like there's more middle income people in China than there are people in the US. Okay? But they're almost all urban. So th this is using an international definition of middle income. While this rural population, <laughs> right, is 90% low income, okay? So they're living, even the premier of China says, hey, we have 600 million people, right? Half of our population lives on $5 a day or less, okay? And that's low in, uh, 900 million live on $10 a day or less. And they're almost all rural. There are very, very few low income urban people. So, I mean, it's it's two worlds out there. And the reason why we don't know this is they're invisible, right? Is they work in the factories, they work in the construction towers, they then go home and live in the alleys and in the basements in the when they're in the urban areas, or they live out in these villages that are just, you know, off the track. When you go from Beijing to Shanghai, you fly there or you take the high-speed rail, you don't even see this part of China. So, Scott, this is obviously not part of the narrative that the Communist Party like to promote or publicise in terms of their achievements. And the party do make a big song and dance about the poverty reduction achievements over the last 40 years or so. And, and, and well, I mean, it's indis indisputable that in urban areas, certainly China has had something of a miraculous growth trajectory. And a lot of the damage that the party did prior to reform has been undone in the urban areas. And in aggregate, China now enjoys sort of middle income state, as it were. It's now after the economic miracle, it's average in a global context. But the degree to which the rural population have been left behind, as you've just articulated, how do the rural population interpret their circumstances relative to the urban population? Who do they blame for it? And are they even aware of the huge gulf that exists between them and the urban population? Because it sounds to me like politically, it's quite a volatile set of circumstances to, to tolerate. Yeah, no, this is, uh, I think this is at the heart of the, the question. And it's what's changing too. First of all, you can't take anything away from China. They have grown and they've got rid of poverty, most of it, right? I mean, like I said, they've now moved from poverty to low income. But to your question, I think the work by my colleague, Marty White, who's Professor Emeritus from Harvard, he's a sociologist, it really captures this. And I see it in all the people I work with. And, and that is for 
20 years from the 1990s to 2010 or so, um, Marty would go and say, do you know that China's unequal? <laughs> right. And uh, so he'd be asking these people at the bottom end of the spectrum and they'd say, yeah, because, you know, they're washing the windows of the Mercedes Benz, right? Of the urban guy, right? He says, of course I know. Well, that, he says, well, what do you think about that? And what Marty said is for these 20 or 30 years from the 80s to through the early 2010s, people would say, hey, look, it, I know it's unequal, but I'm better off than my parents were when they were this old. I'm better off 10 years ago till now. And then they'd say, I think I'm going to be better off 10 years from now. So that kept the glue together as this inequality rose. The problem is, is I have a set of papers now called the emergence of polarization. And what we see now is the change of access to the off-farm labor market, which was new in the 80s and 90s. And then the rising wages, which was for the first 15 years of the 2000s is now we start seeing it reversing. And what's happening is manufacturing is falling and construction labor is falling. Everybody's getting dumped into the service sector. And guess what, right? It's an informal service sector, right? And they aren't covered by labor laws completely. They don't have access to social services. And of course, if you have a billion people who are low income, they don't consume services, right? And so what we're getting is we're getting this supply of people into the informal labor service sector, but the demand isn't growing fast enough. Wages fall. And that's what's happening over the last five years is we start to see the wages, at least the growth rate of these wages fall. It's now below a falling level of GDP. And I don't see what's going to turn that around. They're starting to tell us, in fact, the Marty's last survey before 2019, the people in this lower income tier said, hey, I'm worried about the future. Just for the first time, what am I going to do, right? And so uh, I, I think that we may be at this turning point when a, a large share of this population is going to start saying, you know, do I want to keep plugged into the system and go along with it? Or do I want to try to, you know, go against it? And um, that's what we're on the edge of, I think. So, Scott, I suppose one of the things that uh, Stuart and I have been speaking about amongst ourselves, but also with people like George Magnus, is the fact that China's economic model is changing. It has to change because we're now getting to the end of the huge development process that they've been going through and, and people are being laid off from the infrastructure projects, which are now coming to an end, and huge amounts of building that's happened over the last 50 years is now coming to an end. And so a lot of these people uh, are going to struggle, especially if they don't have the proper education, which again, you know, is at the center, I think, of the hypothesis that you make in, in Invisible China. But these people aren't well educated, and, and they're going to find it very difficult to help China move up the value chain. And in fact, I seem to remember from previous conversations that you were saying that evidence of the fact that China is changing its economic model is that people are, men in particular, are moving back to villages which have been empty of young men for generations because they've all been going off to the city to earn a crust. So what does this changing economic profile coupled with low education and problems in rural China mean for social issues and the development of China as a whole? Well, I think, first of all, since we haven't been there in three years, <laughs> and these are three years when 
the unemployment or underemployment has only been made worse by COVID and by some of the policies uh, that, you know, that the government has followed. You know, we see the, the newspapers in China are full of reporting the rise of unemployment of young urban people, right? You know, guess what? No rural person is unemployed. Zero. That's because every one of them has land. And as soon as they lose their job in a factory or lose their job in a construction site, right, they're a farmer again. Of course, they've never farmed and their income is very, very low on that farm. And so I know that from our surveys right after the early times of COVID is that there were tens of millions of families that had lost their job or had had their wages. They were still working, but their wages were much lower. So I think that what's going to happen with those guys? Well, there's a couple of scenarios. I think most of them are going to tighten their belt, work as hard as they can, try to make it. But I think there's going to be a subset of them that we talked about last time, Sam, was where I don't have a wife, right? I don't have a family. I'm poor. I get to a point where what do I lose from going into the informal, informal sector, right? I mean, uh, we call it the organized crime sector or the dark side sector. And, uh, you know, I think that we're going to see more and more of that. Now, on the other hand, China has invested a lot into facial surveillance technology and and building a big uh, police force inside. So I think that they know that that's coming. So I think that this is going to be something we're going to watch really close over the next five, 10 years. It's an important question. That's going to determine a lot. And, you know, I think it's going to determine, you know, can China keep itself on this even keel, you know, or is it going to go down more or can it miraculously recover and keep five, six percent growth? Scott, maybe we can come to that in a minute. But uh, I just wanted to pick up on something you said there about land ownership and the rural population and the kind of safety net that potentially that provides or at least a safety net from being categorized officially as being unemployed. Presumably, as China's urbanization has run its course, the geographical definition of an urban area has changed as the cities have grown to subsume large parts of what was countryside. And and I wanted to just ask you about two factors to that. One is, when we talk about an urban population, i.e. having an urban registration, has the area in which being born into an urban area changed to take account of rural areas that have been subsumed into urban districts? That was my first question. I suppose second question sort of linked to that is presumably a lot of former rural members of the population don't have land because it was bought by the property developers, stolen by the property developers or the local governments for residential development. And and I was wondering how much of a source of discontent that was. Yes, I I see three things. I'll try to go through them quickly. First of all, is land really this safety net? And um, I think it's a safety net. I think it's a real, real, real low safety net. So we did a survey at a factory uh, with a lot of people working at it. We, we surveyed 20,000 people and we asked these young workers, the workers were between 15 and 30 years old or 35 years old, most of them. And we said, what are you going to be doing 10 years from now? Okay. 10% said, I'm still going to work in the factory. 
1% said, I can go get a white collar job. 1%. Okay. You, you know, in South Korea and Taiwan, when the factories shut down and they moved their factories to China, guess what? The, the population all had high school or higher education. Even the workers did. They moved into white collar jobs. But only 1% of this rural labor force said, I can move in that. 88% said, I'm going to go be in the informal labor service sector. They, they basically said, I want to work for myself. Self-employed, okay? So, uh, but only 1%, you, you add all those things up, right? 88 plus 10 plus one, only 1% said, I'm going to go back and farm. We then ask them, why aren't you going to go farm? And these are 15 to 30 year olds. About 90% said, I've never farmed one day in my life. I don't know how to farm. Okay, that's number one. Number two said, <laughs> I make more money in three weeks than my dad makes in an entire year on that farm. Do you think I'm going to go back and work hard for three weeks of wages? They said, no way. So that's what I'm talking about. This is a very, very low safety net. So the second set of questions was about this peri-urban area. So people who have lost their land. It was a big issue in the 90s and early 2000s. In fact, since that time, uh, when they take land away from farmers, they, they don't want to have big protests or anything. They actually give them a lot, right? They build apartment buildings and give them often give them two apartments, okay? So they lose their land, but they have two apartments. So they live in this one and they rent this one out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I always say, hey, they've become an urban person. But what we find is the way they raise their kids, the way they... Uh, manage their health, the way they eat, the way they raise their babies is, you know, you can say, I can take the boy out of the country, but I can't take the country out of the boy. They're basically rural people with urban residencies that live in a urban area, but they still act like rural people. Now, I think that after a generation or so, they're going to be changing, but, but this first generation really are urbanized rural people who are still rural people. And I think that the problems that come with them are, are going to show up. And by the way, you know, lots of people say, oh, wow, so many people have got their land taken away from them. China's only lost two to 3% of its farmland to urbanization over the past 15 years. 98% of the rest of the land is still out there. You know, a small fraction will continue to be, but most of it will be farmland forever. And so I'm sure these guys in the middle of Henan and Anhui and Sichuan, they would love somebody to go buy their land from them, <laughs> but nobody's going to go buy it. Cisco, much as we're enjoying this conversation, and, and it's quite an academic conversation in many ways, but we have a lot of policymakers and, and business people listening to this uh, who want to know more about China. So the question that they'll be asking is, why should we in the West care about the invisible China and about the people that haven't got an education that are living in sort of quite poor areas? Does that make any difference to China's economic prospects? Does it make any difference to Chinese policy regarding their movements overseas and their actions overseas? Well, I mean, I think I think that it makes all the difference in the world in terms of growth. I mean, you know, what invisible China says is, the probability of China basically stagnating or collapsing or just not growing fast anymore is very, very high. And one of the reasons, there are other reasons, but one of the reasons is because of this very large 
unemployable in a high-income, high-skilled economy part of their labor force. I mean, th- th- the question is, is you know, what do you do? What, what do you do with 500, 600 million people that have never had one day of high school education? I mean, how do you move them up to a high-income country? Either you have to give them massive social welfare payments to keep them, you know, from from, you know, causing social problems or, and, and, you know, China has big fiscal problems now, especially as they're trying to maintain their military, they're doing Belt and Road, they're, they're trying to go to the moon. And at the same time, they have this gigantic, you know, rural population that's income is falling. And it's going to do two things. Okay. I think there absolutely is going to be a rise of huge social problems, including crime. And that's going to divert resources from other places to try to try to manage that. It's also going to discourage investment, right? The, the second thing is, is if China wants to try to depend on its own economy for growth, their policy is dual circulation economy. What do 900 million people living on $10 a day, they are not a source of growth, okay? And they don't have the education to become high income over time. I mean, I... I think if they don't go into crime, they're going to go into the informal sector. And just like Mexico, just like Brazil, just like Colombia, just like South Africa, the rise of this informal sector actually becomes an anchor on the formal sector. It competes against them. It pulls them down. And, you know, I think that that's the real, real danger that China's facing. How does a no growth or a negative growth China, how do they act internationally. That's not my field, but you could, what happens when the Russian economy doesn't grow for a long time? Look what happens in Ukraine. That's why I think people should at least worry about that. What can we do about it? It's a tough issue. Scott, just very quickly, one last question here. Xi Jinping and the hierarchy of the party must be well aware of these social problems. How much of a priority is it for them? I mean, we've come to expect things to be prioritized as and when they pose an existential threat to the party's power. Are we at a stage now where rural policy is being elevated through the to-do list? And what might we expect Xi Jinping to do about it? Well, uh, I think that they do recognize there's this problem. Sometimes I don't think they realize the real root of the problem. So, you know, they create more vocational high schools to get more kids into high school. But since the kids didn't have very good elementary school education and there's almost you know very low quality preschool education, there's no zero to three parental training. And so you're raising a whole generation of farm boys who don't have the cognitive ability you know, to go into the high skill or even academic high school or above where you need computers and uh, science and math and, and language abilities. And that's where they have to start, right? And so number one. Number two is they say, let's use urbanization as a mechanism. I think that's one thing they've been saying. And of course, they want Beijing for Beijingers and Shanghai for Shanghaiers. So they're going to create they're going to take county seats. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this new policy they're talking about is getting rid of this hukou for small cities. So cities under 3 million people. And basically what they want people to do is to go back to these small cities in the middle of the countryside. So what I often say is China has 2,000 counties. We have 2,000 counties in the U.S. 
Okay. What China's plan is, one of their plans for urbanization is to take those 2,000 county seats and turn them into 200,000 person cities. So they want 2,000, 200,000 person cities. But who's going to live in them? I mean, China has 300 million people that are middle income. They live in Shanghai, Shenzhen, Beijing, and Guangzhou, right? You're going to populate these 2,000 county seats with 200,000 low-income people. Well, you aren't going to do manufacturing out there. You're not going to do construction after a while. They aren't going to consume services. I I think you're making 2,000 basically slums over time. So they say, we're going to use urbanization. We're going to expand high school, but they don't get at the roots of the problem. And I think that that's really what it's going to come down to. And as we've seen with so many of these middle-income countries, they grow, grow, grow from poverty to middle income, and then they stagnate. But we've never had a country as big as China stagnate. We've never had a country with as big of an army as China. Uh, and I think that's going to be a real challenge for the world. Brilliant. Well, Scott, thank you so much for a tour de force of the issues surrounding Invisible China, as your book title indicates. Really good to hear. And I must say that of all the books I read on China and the issues, the challenges, that they face. Yours really stands out as being perhaps the most apocalyptic, simply because of the scale of things. And I just hope it doesn't end up that way. Yeah, well, it's written. I mean, I I wrote this as probably, you know, I mean, I want to bring this to the attention of people. I don't want China failing. I want them to participate fairly with transparency, right, in the international order, you know, because, you know, I, I think a steadily growing, fairly open China is great for the world and it's great for China. It's great for Asia, but that's not the way we're going. (laughs) No, sadly not. Scott Rispel, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye.